welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. In the last days of May 1358, thousands of French villagers across northern France revolted against a faltering regime, from Normandy in the west to Picardy and Champagne in the east. Castles and manor houses were burned and looted. Noblemen and their families were assaulted, murdered, and possibly raped. Enraged nobles counterattacked, executing rebels, or those they believed to be rebels, and burning whole villages. This was the Jacquerie, taking its name from Jacques Bonhomme, the sobriquet given to its participants. It was one of the many calamitous events of that decade, which had begun with the Black Death in 1348. But what is its story? Why did the Jacquerie arise? Who were they? Why did this revolt so quickly end? And were there any lasting effects? With me to describe the story of the Jacquerie is Justine Fernhaber-Baker, senior lecturer at the University of St. Andrews and author of The Jacquerie of 1358, A French Peasant's Revolt. A former fellow of All Souls Oxford, she is also general editor of the Medieval Journal and editor-in-chief of St. Andrews Studies in French History and Culture. Justine Fernhaber-Baker, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. So um, this is one of those events which the participants actually called it the name that we still call it, right? This is the... the um, yeah, well, they called themselves Jacques Bonhomme. Um, the first instance of the word Jacquerie used to describe the revolt um, comes from, is first found in 1360 in, um, in, a, in a royal document. Um, so it, it is a name that, that dates to the time, and we find it also in the Chronicles of Jean Foissat, written um, maybe 20 years after the revolt, this part. So it is, it is a medieval name, um, though in the sources you more often see it referred to as commotions or um, the word effroi, which means noisy terrors. Huh. Which is, that's a very nice word. That's one of those words that just, yeah, I mean, that's one of those excellent words that only works in the other language, right? Like uh, tripping well, gets it's, it's um, etymologically related to our word affray, which, which also no has longer, those same, yeah. same connotations. Yeah, that's a very, that's very good 18th century English, uh, which now <laughs> has to be translated, you know, I mean, it, yeah. it is affray, is, it's great. So um, they call themselves Jacques Bonhomme. That was, yeah. Is that like a, ter- a peasant term for oneself or for other peasants? Um, it's like, it's yeah, like, like John Doe or Filano Dital or something like that? It's, it's a funny term because it works both as, uh, we think probably the origin of it is actually derisory, that it's actually mm-hmm. a term that nobles used for foot soldiers. Um, but it also seems to be one that the rebels positively adopted for themselves. Um, and actually, even before the revolt, um, there's this poem from 1356 um, that uses Jacques Bonhomme as, you know, meaning the loyal soldiers, common born soldiers, foot soldiers, but the loyal ones who won't run away. Unlike the nobles who who did <laughs> run away at the Battle of Poitiers in 1356, when the king was actually captured by the English. Uh, so you've segued so nicely into the Battle of Poitiers. Uh, which is, I mean, we should also probably touch on how did the Black Death contribute to the situation in 1358. But the Battle of Poitiers and the capture of the King of France is certainly leads to this two years of turmoil, which then 
from which the shakali arise is that mm-hmm. yeah that's absolutely yeah I would, I would say that's the proximate cause Proxi- there you go um yeah so so you have these um you have very immediate causes which maybe we'll talk about yeah. later um then the military situation, the Battle of Poitiers, the governmental collapse, which I would call sort of the proximate causes. And then you have these much longer term contexts, which also have a causal relation. So the Black Death really hits France about 10 years before the Jacqueries. So um, the winter of 1348 is when northern France first really begins um, to have great mortality from the Black Death. Um, So by 1358, that first wave is really well in the past. You know, um, it will come back. Um, There is another big wave starting in 1361, and it may be that it's after the 1361 wave that plague really beds in in Europe and becomes endemic. Um, there's still a lot of scholarly controversy about that, but in 1358, this is still in the back. This is, this is fading. However, the economic effects are maybe becoming a little bit more obvious, um, because they're past that first initial shock. Um, but, you know, maybe 30 to 50% of the population has died just in that first wave, and that really changes the relationship um, about things like the availability of land, the availability of labor, um, a reduction in the taxation base. So there are different pressures, um, and it does seem like that. so. It's not a direct cause of the Jacquerie, but no one is saying you know um, wages should be going up. Um, prices for land should be going down, um, but the king and the nobles have conspired to make this not happen. Um, but there are signs of some discontent around that, though really the discontent about the military and the political situation um, seems to be much more top of mind. So what, uh, with the capture of the king, who's in charge? Yeah, okay, so... So the king, John II, um, captured on the battlefield, and his son, his eldest son, Charles, um, is only 18 years old. And Charles will become one of the great medieval kings of France, Charles V, Charles the Wise, as Christine de Pizan calls him. He's not very wise in 1358. Um, He's very easily led, um, including by his cousin, King Charles II of Navarre. Um, He's a bit feckless and no one really trusts him. So the government kind of devolves upon this um, assembly of the three estates of France. So the three estates are the clergy, the nobility, and the townsmen. and they in they they have an emergency meeting after Poitiers, and they try to institute this um, reforming government. And and what they really want to reform is taxation. They want to get rid of corrupt councillors, and they want to run the war effort better. And the people who really come to the fore during that emergency meeting are the head, well, not the head of the first estate, but one of the um, major spokespeople for the clergy. 
which is Bishop, Bishop um, Robert Lecoq of Blanc, and the head of the Parisian merchant, so um, the spokesman for the third estate, Etienne Marcel, um, who really is basically in charge of Paris. Okay. Um, so these people try to sort of control the Dauphin, and they're pretty successful about that until the summer of 1357. Then they get back in control in the fall of 1357. Um, and then they basically stage a coup in um, February 1358 when it looks like they're about to lose their um, their hold on power again. And this is the revolt of Paris? Um, this is a sort of a, a separate, but an antecedent revolt, or yeah, um, yeah. It's uh, I'm not even sure I would necessarily characterize it as a revolt, quite, <laughs> uh, quite until that moment in February 1358, when um, Etienne Marcel incites a mob to enter the palace, enter the Dauphin's bedchamber and kill two of his marshals in front of him. Mm. So the Royal Chronicler says that blood splashed onto the Dauphin's clothing, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So this is the moment when there's kind of no going back. Um, And it, it actually takes a while after that for the Dauphin to really break with the Parisians, to break with Etienne Marcel. Um, but he goes to this assembly of nobles in um, Champagne in April, and a couple of them take him aside and they go, you know, Charles, what's going on? And do you do you know any reason why these marshals should have been killed? Is 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 this a just thing? And he says, well, actually, maybe not. And at that point, at that point, it really the game is on. Um, He fortifies a couple of castles that mean that um, the river supply lines to Paris are imperiled. Um, The Parisians start defensive measures. Um, So it's it's really at that point where you get the sense there's no turning back now. So um, in what I said in the introduction and um, the revolt seems... It's more limited than I thought. Um, it's 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 Western mm-hmm. Normandy. It's the northern Ile de France, not the south, the southern Ile de France, and then Picardy and, and Champagne. Um, it's actually interesting for anyone who yeah. looks at a map of World War One. You can see the same battlefields, the same places. Uh, it's like you know they're they're, they're layers in all European history. Mm-hmm. The same things th- yeah. things happen in the same place. Um, why not the south of the Ile de France? Why these places? I'm, I was struck by the sort of geographic specificity. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, the reason the revolt starts where it does, which is a village um, uh-huh. a bit north of Paris called Saint Louis de Sauron. Um, is because that's a crossing place on the Oise River. And this is, um, there are three rivers that sort of supply Paris. This is the one the Dauphin hasn't blocked. So it starts there um, probably in in an effort to keep the Oise flowing. Um, And it spreads outward from there. Partly, partly as a diversionary 
tactic to move the Dauphin's troops, which have been massing um, southeast of Paris to the northeast, to the to the northwest. Um, partly because that's where um, there actually hasn't been a lot of military violence um, in the past. So we used to think that the Jacquerie was a reaction to military violence, um, a sort of convulsive reaction to um, a hatred for men at arms and being pillaged. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, if you look on a map where the soldiers were is exactly where the Jacquerie, where the soldiers weren't is exactly where the Jacquerie is. Um, It also has to do with the greater political organization of that part of France. Um, It's a very urbanized area. It is absolutely laced with roads. Um, so there's there's a lot more urban rural communication possible there. It's much more commercialized. Um, it's also close to Flanders, where there's a tradition of revolt. So there's a lot there. There is an effort in early June to get the peasants south of Paris to rise, and I I think that is an effort to sort of revive the Jacquerie. Um, but it doesn't really so much get off the well, ground. That's get- a, much less. Let's get to that in a second. But you have a chapter called, very simply, Massacre to Movement. So ma- the massacre is the yeah. the, the marshals. So the, uh, there's a couple of things, and you deal with this at many places in the book. Um, is this really simply a peasants' rebellion? It, it seems to be, uh-huh. you're describing now a sort of town, rebellions of towns, um, in which peasants are also involved. Uh, so yeah. so how does this go from, how does it become a movement? Yeah. Okay. So the massacre is actually the um, the nine noblemen who are oh, killed right. on the twenty eighth of May at Saint Denis de Savon, and that's that that is always taken as a, the first moment of the Jacquerie. Um, but it's actually quite different from the Jacquerie as a whole. They never again kill that many noblemen at once. Um, and that, that looks like a, a reactionary moment, a, a moment um, of killing in hot blood, where most of the killing takes place individually or singly, um, usually after some sort of judicial process. Hmm. Okay, so how do you get from this killing of these nine noblemen? And it looks like that's pretty closely um connected with the um, the needs of Paris to keep the walls open. Now, whether the impetus for that came from Paris or was rural people um, who basically knew the score or maybe had been told to look out for something like this, um, that's unclear. But how you get from that discrete moment to this massive uprising over more, most of Northern France, um, is a real question and a question that I spend about um, <laughs> about 25,000 words yeah. trying to answer. Yeah, so let's do, let's do it in two minutes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it, it does look – and I draw a lot upon the um, sociologist Charles Tilley's um, arguments about um, how you get what he calls coordinated destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are both um, – sort of accidental elements of contingency there. Um, But there's often some planning behind the scenes. So one of the things that Tilly says happens a lot and that you can really see here 
um, our efforts at polarization, at making an us and them. And the us and them in this case is non-nobles versus nobles. And that had been going on for at least a good six months here in these meetings of the estates. The nobles had started meeting separately um, from the rest of them, but also longer in terms of the war and in terms of, you know, these shock bonhommes, are they a good thing or a bad thing? Um, but it also looks like there's more specific plans to put the countryside under a captain or captains. And what happens in the immediate um, wake of the revolt is they elect a captain, um, this guy called Guillaume Gall. Um, but it also looks like there are other efforts afoot to um, find a captain for the countryside who isn't aligned with Paris, um, who maybe isn't aligned with the Dauphin either, just someone um, to kind of ready the countryside's defenses, because what they're really preparing for here is a war between the not only the Dauphin and Paris, but also the Dauphin and um, King Charles of Navarre, yeah. who has his own claim on the French throne. So should we talk about Charles of Navarre for a little bit? Um, one of the... Sure. Uh, I mean, he never comes off well to like, uh, to, uh, he didn't come off so well to most of the chroniclers at the time. Um, but, uh, what's his role? Cause it's, it, it, it's a very complex story with all these pieces moving around. It's a very complex story. Yeah. Um, okay. So Charles of Navarre doesn't come off well, um, particularly in the French chronicles. And since I think the 17th century, he's been known as Charles the Bad. Yeah. He wasn't known as Charles the Bad at the time, and he comes off much better in the Navarrese chronicle, I have to say. Um, so Charles of Navarre is, as he says, um, at one point, descended from the old Capetian monarchy, um, the old dynasty of France, both on his mother's and his father's side. So his claim to the French throne is actually maybe better than that of King Edward of England, who is also descended from the Capetians. Um, this is his claim on the French throne and why we have the Hundred Years' War, right? He's claiming that he should be King of France. Um, so Charles of Navarre is also, um, he's King of Navarre because um the Capetian monarchy of France was briefly also <laughs> briefly also held um, the kingdom of Navarre in northern Spain, yeah. which is another story, um, which they got via the county of Champagne. But yes, yeah, very complicated. This. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Charles, um, he's king of Navarre, so he's a sovereign king in his own right. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's really important to remember. You know, he is pursuing his own politics and he has every right to do that. He is also has um, major holdings in Normandy. So he's also um, the Count of Evreux and he would really like his ancestral holdings in Champagne back. And um, so the Dauphin, his father John, um, their dynasty, the Valois, have been very unfair um, to the Navarrese family in their um, in their perception for actually for generations at this point. Mm -hmm. So what Charles really wants, and this is, is in a way very similar to what King Edward um, the Third of England wants. He wants the French crown really to respect his rights in France. Mm -hmm. Um, he wants his lands, um, 
his land rights respected. He he wants the land and the money that's been promised him. You know, just as Edward the Third, what he's really interested is Gascony and full sovereignty, right? Um, but this this claim to the French crown is a really nice piece of leverage um, because King John, the Dauphin, the whole Valois monarchy they do have a bit of a legitimacy problem in that they aren't the old Capetian dynasty. So Charles of Navarre. Um, so he, he, Charles of Navarre is on Charles of Navarre's side. He is on his own side. And so yeah, and that means that he takes from the perception of other people, he takes different sides. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So at sometimes he's against, well, how, so how does, from the peasant's perspective, from the Jacques Bonhomme's perspective, Where's Charles mm-hmm. of Navarre during this, during the sort of the buildup to late May of 1358 yeah. and then afterwards? Yeah. Okay. Well, so Charles of Navarre is allied with Etienne Marcel and um, particularly with Robert Lecoq in okay. Paris. Um, and he is on, he supports them with soldiers and he supports them with his own prestige and uh, with his own charm. The thing about Charles of Navarre is a very charming guy. So he's, he's helping them to push the Dauphin to do what the reform party wants. Um, The rural rebels um, who undertake the Jacquerie are unsure of what side Charles of Navarre is on as regards themselves. So they are hopeful that since they are friendly with Etienne Marcel, and we have evidence of communication going back, that Charles of Navarre will also be friendly with them. Um, However, the nobles of of Northern France get Charles of Navarre on their side. So while while the Jacquerie is going on, Charles of Navarre is actually up in Normandy um, besieging a castle that the Dauphin has taken from him. So he's, he's actually off the scene at the beginning. Um, but after the Jacquerie breaks, up, breaks out, some Northern nobles come to Charles of Navarre and say, hey, look, we need help here. Um, And it looks like they kind of offer him a quid pro quo. So it looks like what they say is, if you come and help us now, we won't go to war against you. And Charles of Navarre is at this point planning for outright war with France, with the Dauphin. So, um, you know, and and Charles of Navarre agrees to this and... um, takes his army against the the Jacques at um, near Clermont, um, near the city of Beauvais, and utterly destroys and them. What, what's the date on that, just to keep things in, in, in order? Um, that We're not totally sure about the date, but we think it's probably around the 10th of June. Okay. Um, and at the same time, um, another contingent of Jacques, in conjunction with the Parisian army, is being destroyed Um over by Champagne um, at the city of Meaux. So, you know, we're only a couple of weeks off from the from the outbreak at Saint-Louis-Desseron at this point. Mm-hmm. So can we just describe the, the, the incident Meaux? Because that's, that's a very dramatic froissart. There's a great, there's yeah. a great miniature in one of Froissart's um, the chronicles. And it gives a big thing because it's the Dauphin's wife 
who's pregnant. Yeah, is 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 one of um, she, her, she's got her baby daughter there. Baby daughter's there, Not sure and lots of other well. ladies and nobles of the realm are mm-hmm. locked up, are are basically being besieged by a group of the Jacques Bonhomme. Yeah, so the Dauphin's wife, his baby daughter, and his sister are there, right. um, as well as a bunch of nobles who have fled the Jacquerie, um, among them many women. The reason that the Dauphin's um, wife is there is that um, this is where he put her to be safe. And this is the first, um, this is a castle that he garrisoned after that um, meeting in April when he decides to break with Paris. And this is the castle, um, it's on an island Mm -hmm. in the Marne River and it allows you to block the Marne River. So this is um, this is a major stronghold and a, a major part of the Dauphin's strategy to kind of cut Paris off. Um, the Parisians had wanted to hold Meaux themselves. Um, the citizens of Meaux were pretty much on their side because the garrison had um, sort of abused the citizens. So the citizens, so an, once the Jacquerie gets going, the Parisians um, get together an army and they march out to mow along the way. They press villagers into service along with them and um, contingents from the Jacquerie's main armies also join them. Um, the citizens of Mo let the combined army of the Jacques and the Parisians in and on the morning of the 10th of June, maybe at the same time that um, Charles of Navarre is destroying the Jacques over by Beauvais, they attack this castle, the Marché de Meaux, which is on an island, um, and it just connects to the rest of the city by a small bridge. And this means that it can be really easily defended. And there's probably, I can't remember how many I figured out were there, but maybe maybe 40 Mm -hmm. men-at-arms in the castle and you know i think about six thousand um non-noble soldiers trying to cross this bridge um but the soldiers not only is the place well defended the castle is garrisoned by some of the greatest noble soldiers in france including gaston foy Mm -hmm. um who is this great chivalric figure um so actually, the non-noble army is is routed very quickly and very decisively, um, and they are chased into the fields and slaughtered like pigs. And then the nobles burn the town of Mo. So this gets us to questions of violence. Um, mm. We I, I I had said carefully um, that um, noblemen were murdered, um, allegedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, some their families were murdered allegedly. Uh, some were women were raped. Um, mm-hmm. You also uh, mentioned that there were that the the Jacquerie, they often use trials. I'd like to hear about these sort of judicial mechanisms that they're sort of developing either on the fly, but I, I presume based on something they're used to, some judicial process that's familiar to them. Um, so, yeah. what, what exactly um, is the violence? First of all, the violence of the Jacquerie, and then we'll go to the violence of the counter Jacquerie. Okay, so um, so actually, most of the the violence of the Jacquerie is visited on. Um, it's mostly property damage. Okay. Um, 
which we can talk about in a minute. Yeah. Um, in terms of judicial judicial procedures, so we don't have like court records. And actually, an important thing about the Jacquerie in general is that all our information about this comes from after the revolt itself. We don't we don't actually have anything from during the revolt. Mm-hmm. Um, so what seems to be happening is noblemen are captured. Um, brought before Guillaume Cal or another of um, the sort of higher ups um, in the Jacquerie and um, and judged. It, it seems normally the charge is treason, um, which is quite a, a common word to throw around in the middle of the 14th century. Hmm. Um, why, why is that? And. Um, I mean, I can come up with some guesses, but um, I'm, I'm... yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's because that's it, it's sort of the worst thing. You, it, it is actually the worst thing you can do. Um, if you if you think about Dante's circles of hell, yep. who are the very very worst? The very very worst are the betrayers of patrons, right? Mm-hmm. So it's basically committers of treason. That's the, that's so the, it is the, the, yeah, the closest to Satan in the lake of ice. The betrayers of patrons, yeah. the people who are also, and of course, the three archetypes are the you know Brutus, Cassius, and Judas Iscariot being chewed by the three heads of Satan. So yeah, yeah. So, um, so uh, yeah, I, I think that treason is just the kind of the worst what, thing you can do. It, it's um, just that this is a moment in which, um, you know, is Edward the traitor? Is Charles of Navarre a traitor? Is Edward, the th- uh, Edward of England yeah. a traitor? This is a moment um, also, uh, are Gascons traitors to the king? I mean, this is the moment mm-hmm. where loyalties are, and, uh, are completely up for grabs in a way that's, I think, often very hard for people raised after nationalism. When we read these sources, yeah. we, we find it's really hard to understand, you know, who's loyal to who. And so when it, to, to find that that treason is the most common charge, you know, it's certainly the worst mm-hmm. thing. It it really that a further um, further compounds the difficulty of reading uh, and understanding these people. Yeah, well, and I think what they're really betraying is they're 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 said to have betrayed the people of the countryside. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. Bad lords. Um, Sorry? Bad lords. Um, I don't know because it's not really a. Um, the Jacques is much more about royal politics than it is about um, lordship. Uh-huh. I mean, unlike the um, the English revolt of thirteen eighty one, you don't get documents destroyed. Don't, you don't uh, get. Um, no, there are <laughs> three three cases in which documents were destroyed, and in every case, they are not being destroyed um, by the people. Of of the Lord, you know they're, they're being destroyed by out by these people I call outsider Jacques yeah. who come to the village. Um, so the the Jacques is about royal politics. It's about um, the social status of nobility and the kind of perks that come with nobility mm-hmm. that come in, in, including perks of taxation. So you know I think it's about betraying community interest, mm. um, and I think it's. It's not only the lack of national identities, although claiming to be a good Frenchman is something that you get at this time, and, and you get Jacquerie people claiming to be good Frenchmen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really the community identity and that sense of belonging to a community and, and having your own 
individual identity sort of subsumed to that of the community Mm -hmm. that I think is quite difficult for us moderns to grasp. We're very happy to belong to nations, but as individual citizens with individual rights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that somehow the the nobles have violated communal rights or communal, communal loyalties. As you said, as you said earlier, it's not places we. Uh, the standard interpretation was that these are nobles have failed in their compact with the people that they're supposed mm-hmm. to defend. But these are not the places, as you, as you said already, these are not places that have experienced a chevauchee. They haven't. Uh, this is not. This is not um, Western Normandy. This is far Eastern. Yeah, far Eastern Normandy. They are angry at the no- nobles for what they see as their cowardly conduct in the war. They feel that is a betrayal. Yeah, yeah. That's what gets noised about, about the Battle of Poitiers. Right, that the Dauphin r- ran. The nobles, betrayed, yeah. the nobles ran. The nobles betrayed the king. Yeah. The nobles betrayed the realm. And the nobles betrayed the people of France. And there's, yeah, I wish I, no, I, don't, I didn't put a note there. But there's several places where this is the, this is the, this is the discourse by the Jacques ag- yeah, against yeah, the so nobles. The, yeah. yeah, so there's that, that poem, mm-hmm. the complaint. Um, regarding the Battle of Poitiers, which you know, I think that that poem was probably a song. Yeah. Um, but you also get you know sort of one-off um, anecdotes about nobles passing through a village and peasants attacking them, saying, "Let's get these traitors who failed the king at the Battle of Poitiers." Um, so there, there, I think there really is a um, very widespread consciousness that the nobles have failed the king, have failed the country, and therefore have failed the people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, let's, uh, before we get to property damage, let's talk about rape. Um, yeah. This is certainly something that the uh, Fossar, uh, uh, the chroniclers all allege happened. Do you find mm-hmm. any other trace other than the, of that? Other, I mean, let's, on the one hand, it is uh, sexual um, crimes are, dead common in 14th century warfare. I mean, um, in, in the chevauchee, it's, it's impossible. It's it's impossible to separate. Um, the chevauchee is in part almost sometimes can become an instrument of of rape, um, in in multiple senses. Um, yes. I mean, this is, I mean, and I think particularly during this period, I mean, I, uh, one of the things I say in the book is I think that rape has probably become more of an instrument Mm -hmm. of war, more, more prevalent in this particular period in the mid 14th century um, than previously. And I I base that on a corpus of Mm -hmm. hundreds of other sources from elsewhere in France, just looking at where, when those accusations break cluster. So are, so do the Jacques, do they, do they practice this weapon of warfare? Yeah. So that's, that is a hard question to answer. And, um, I come down very slightly uh, – the interpretation is delicate. And I'll, I'll, let me just lay out the evidence yes, and then um, – so, okay. So about half the chronicles, there are basically 12 chronicles um, that fall into, I don't know, five or six groups. And half of them say that the Jacques raped women. Mm-hmm. Um, half of them don't. Now, then the judicial sources, of which 
I don't know, there are about 200 um, letters of pardon and then some court cases for people involved in the revolt and its suppression. There are only two cases um, of a crime that might be that might be rape in those um, that that is on um, where the Jacques are implicated, though no individual woman is said to have been raped by the Jacques. Um, the one individual we can say was raped during this was actually raped in the um, the noble suppression. Mm-hmm. Okay, so some people will look at that and say, okay, so Foissart is making this up. Foissart makes up tons of stuff, right? Um, and he's doing it for a fact, and this is about chivalric, you know, failures of, of chivalry and so on. Okay, maybe. But here's the thing. Well, one, rape is underreported. You know, even in our own day, rape is underreported. Um, and you're certainly not, as a noble woman, you're probably not going to want to report a rape by a peasant man. It, in fact, I can't find any rapes of noble women by peasant men elsewhere in um, judicial sources from France in the century before the Jacquerie. Um, but maybe that means that peasants, peasant men didn't rape noble women. We know that noble men did rape peasant women. That's easy to find both in war, but also, you know, in pastoral literature, yeah, <laughs> you know, actually, it's actually endorsed by, yeah. you know, um, Andreas Capolanus. Exactly, yeah. Um, the the thing that makes me a little bit worried about the Jacques not having committed rape is that it's not a trope of peasant revolts. Mm-hmm. This is not a claim that gets noised about about the um, English rebels in 1381. You know, this is not a standard claim about rebels. So that specificity worries me a little bit. You know, I got in the book, I come down, you know, on the side of maybe they didn't actually rape anyone. And maybe this is actually a statement against the way that nobles wage war. And, and you know, we, I, Say we see that maybe with what the Jacques do um, with castles as well, which mm-hmm. maybe we'll talk about. Yeah, what what what, what, what what property crimes next? Um, yeah, yeah. So they don't burn records, which is just uh, which is just a uh, fascinating. Given the later French revolts too, I mean, famously, I remember yeah. uh, Robert Forster uh, explaining how was it in 1389, 1390 during the during the the uh, they would burn the tower with the records and leave the rest of the castle intact. Or, you know, even in the right. 1381 in England, and also then in the French Revolution, you find illiterate peasants who can recognize their charter and pull it out from mm-hmm. other ones and then destroy it. Um, you yeah. know, and to find that dog that doesn't bark um, in in the night, as Sherlock Holmes would say, is really fascinating. Um, it's really indicative yeah, of yeah. something. I'm not sure what. So what do they burn? What do they destroy? Um, they mostly destroy noble houses and their contents. Okay. Not barns. Oh, they destroy their barns as oh, well. Okay, all right. Yeah, so noble houses, noble granges. Um, yeah, I mean, I, when we think about 
you have to think about complexes. Complex. They yeah, build the entire complex. complex. They're not. They're not. Yeah. They're not limiting themselves just to the, the. Yeah, sure. And what do they do? The, yeah. And castles too. I guess they destroy if they can. Yeah. Um. When they can take a castle, um, they tend to destroy them by burning. Um. Sometimes by dismantling. Huh. The funny thing they don't do is they don't occupy them. Huh. And that, you know. The reason you would have a castle, other than for pretentious social display, and that's what most of these castles actually are, castles in, in quotation marks, right. um, you know, they're, they're mostly there for defensive purposes um, to sort of dominate the countryside. The shack mostly don't attack the larger castles. Um, probably because they can't. Um, Castle's defensive capabilities far outstrip the offensive capabilities even of royal armies most of the time. Mm -hmm. You know, we're really before the age of effective gunpowder weaponry. Mm -hmm. Cannons have not turned the tide there yet. Um, So, you know, what they're doing... um, in some cases, we can see that they are taking clear reprisals against the enemies of Etienne Marcel and the reform movement. Um, about half the castles with identifiable owners are clear partisans of the Dauphin. Mm-hmm. Um a lesser percentage are clear partisans of Charles of Navarre, though I think those castles come under fire later on in the revolt when Charles of Navarre has shown himself definitely an enemy of the Jacques. Um, a lot of them don't, a lot of, well, either either um, the politics of the people involved are not that clear um, or or they didn't have any politics. Sometimes there are clear local um, local enmities at work, mm-hmm. um, and that's particularly true um, farther away from the Jacquerie heartlands, where it looks like what is happening is um, local communities are kind of taking advantage of this or taking inspiration from this to say let's go get those guys that we've been having a problem with for a long time. Yeah. Nothing like this moment to take the opportunity. Um, yeah. So the violence, of the counter Jacquerie, which seems a lot worse <laughs> um, mm-hmm. from the sources, uh, how it would seem from given the example at Mo that the counter Jacquerie begins almost immediately. Uh, yeah, it does begin a moment almost immediately. Uh, and yeah, so, I mean, what do they do? I mean, other than do they hold judicial process or do they just kill everybody in the village? What, what, well, what they say, and even the sympathetic chronicles say this is, um, you know, they just, they just hung people from available trees. And the, the text is literally something upon the lines of because they did not have the leisure to inquire about guilt or innocence. Um, Sometimes, um, so some of this gets folded into the um, coming assault on Paris that the that um, the Dauphin is organizing to Paris's southeast. 
Um, and there, you know, his army is, is taking advantage of this moment um, to seize supplies, but also, you know, punish anybody they think might be on Paris's side or just, you know, they think is looking at them funny. Um, and there's also a lot of sort of trigger happy nobles mm -hmm. out there who um, sort of any peasant assembly they see, any um, peasant um, sort of movement towards self-defense, um, they take this as a sign of revolt and, and act accordingly. Any, any rumor they hear that someone has been mouthing off in a village, you know, they go and hang that guy. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of villages do seem to have... Um, been burned in the aftermath um you even get some some sort of minor pitched battles in places between communal armies and nobles and how late does this um, go where this is going into july into july um even in a couple of places into august um what happens up in normandy in Rouen? okay so it's the city of Rouen, mm -hmm. right so this isn't this isn't rural but um, that really turns into um, a sort of little war. Yeah, um, as you say, you say very evocatively. We go from social revolt, revolt to like by July we're in a social war. Uh, yeah, so it's at that point where you know nobles are making war on non nobles um, as well as as nobles revolting, uh, non nobles revolting against um, nobles, and and you get um, you know the the um, Abbot of Foibon, this um, monastery near Beauvais says, you know, the basically said the violence from the counter jacquerie is as bad and as dangerous to them um, as the, the violence from the initial revolt. How does this end? Because it seems to like just be shut off. Um, it just stops. Yeah, well, it ends, it ends with the death of Etienne Marcel at the hands of a mob on the 31st of July. Um, so the Dauphin, so through July, the Dauphin tries to take Paris, um, which is being defended not only by um, the communal militia, but also by Charles of Navarre and his soldiers who are Navarrese, but also English. Um, the Dauphin's assault doesn't really get anywhere and he kind of skulks back to Mo. And actually he's, he's packing his bags and planning to go down to the Dauphiné. Um, when word arrives that the Parisians have killed Etienne Marcel, and they do this because Etienne Marcel has been um, favoring Charles of Navarre's Anglo-Navarrese soldiers who have, have actually subjected the citizens to quite a lot of violence. Mm -hmm. um, so the Parisians decide to hand the city back over to the Dauphin, who, you know, like, this is a bolt from the blue. You know, this is like an act of God yeah. um, showing that that he is actually, you know, the legitimate ruler and God wants him to have Paris. And so, you know, he enters triumphantly. Um, those... Um, those of the of Etienne Marcel's party who have not already either been killed or managed to flee um, are are taken out and executed in spectacular fashion, like having their tongues torn out and and so on, um, in the center of Paris. 
And then the Dauphin starts to investigate, and he has these investigative commissions. Um, so, you know, at this point, the countryside is mostly already um, is mostly already pacified, and this also allows the Dauphin to draw a line under the counter Jacquerie as well. So, in July, you can kind of there aren't that many documents, but it looks like. Um, the Dauphin is, is kind of on the noble side. What happens with the death of Etienne Marcel and getting Paris back is it allows um, the Dauphin and the crown to kind of extricate itself from that conflict and um, present itself as sort of a third party mm. that is above the fray and is that is going to negotiate um, between these um, yeah. constituencies of its subjects who have been having this conflict, which, you know, the the crown is so majestic, <laughs> it's not involved except as a, you know, sort of a distributor of justice and mercy. Charles the Lucky um, is what he should have been called. Yeah. Sorry? <laughs> Charles the Lucky, not Charles the Wise. I and mean, that's, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, he was. Um, he wasn't the first yeah. or the last <laughs> the French king to benefit from a sudden shift of incredible fortune. Um, so, yeah. Um, you have a, a fa- fascinating chapter on the after effects, and sort of it reminded me in some ways of like truth and reconciliation commissions in, say, mm-hmm. South Africa or, or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, that there are the that social war has profound social violence of any it's going to have lingering aftershocks, um, which are as significant as the plague, in their own way. Could you uh, you found these as you as you uh, hunted through the judicial records? You found sort of evidences of these. I I I, I imagine. Um, what's your um what's your thought on what was the after effect of the Jacquerie in the immediate term? And I'm also curious. Um, you know, okay, I'm I'm speaking like someone who does interested in the 18th century. Um, this wasn't the last revolt or revolution in French history. And it's, I'm wondering what imprint it left on subsequent sort of chroniclers. Does it give an experience that people can interpret? Does it give a history yeah. that people interpret their own experience through? It would seem not, which again yeah. is another dog that didn't bark. It's very interesting that mm-hmm. it did not. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So in the, the next 20 years or say, or so, say, after the revolt, you can really see the lingering effects here and there, you know. Um, so there are ongoing lawsuits, and the lawsuits go on for a long time, but they're also um, less formal, more um, more almost organic signs of a continuing unease. So one of my um, favorites, and actually that I end the last chapter on, is the story of the game of um, shul, which mm-hmm. is like like rugby. It's like medieval rugby. Um, that's being played in a village. Um, and on one side, there's this um, young nobleman and his companions, and on the other side, there's this um, non-nobleman and his companions. Um, and the non-noble is is sort of um, being rough and bragging about about the Jacquerie, mm-hmm. um, and sort of he, you know he, he, um, he humili- this- humiliates a young squire, citing quote the revolt of the rural non-nobles against the nobles. Um, yeah, um, and this 
angers this nobleman so much that he comes back with his friends and kills the yeah. non-nobleman. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that's, you know, that's one of those things that you're only going to see in these, in these little glimpses like that. But I, I think that really is very evocative. Yeah. I, um, I prefer the example that you began the paragraph with, which was the marriage of a, a two noble, uh, a noble and a non-noble in Beauvais. In which they say, I'm not going to, I promised Professor Grambert, I'm not going to read the French. They would avert the dangers that might arise from the Jacquerie and secure peace and love hereafter. It's very mm-hmm. much, uh, we'll have to refer people in the show notes to a previous conversation on Caritas, on sort of from a history of the emotions. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. We don't usually put that in wedding bands or in, in the wedding yeah. statement. This is like, there's a, there's a meta hope for that we will increase the charity and love of the community by uh-huh. having this marriage. It's yeah. very, very interesting. Well, you know, really, um, medieval marriages are meant yes. often to, um, to make peace. You know, that that's mm-hmm. what many dynastic marriages are about. Right. Um, yeah, but of course they don't always work. No, they don't. <laughs> Not even at the international level. No, but this is very—it's so fascinating to see at the at the local level. Um, and so there's no yeah. after effect then in 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 as I said in historical memory, which is which is which is fascinating. No, it 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 fades quite quickly. I mean, Jacquerie remains a sort of term of abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well into the late 14th century. This is the kind of thing you might say to someone in a tavern um, who's being kind of a jerk, you know, get off with your jacquerie. Yeah. Um, you know, we have an instance of that. But then it's gone. Um, and it's not necessarily clear that what is at issue there is a sort of um, intentional damnatio memoriae. Um, which you do get in in some revolts. Um, you know, you're just not supposed to talk about it anymore. Um, They're dead to me. But, They're not going to talk about it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do. I mean, there are echoes of Etienne Marcel's revolt. Um, the revolts in 1381. Um, sorry, in 1382, in um, the the Mayotte in Paris and the Aurel in Rouen, which happened at the same time about taxation after the death of Charles V in 1380, those actually have some of the same people hmm. and are using the same language as Etienne Marcel's revolt and then the Cabochien um, revolt in 1413. That uses, the, they've got the documents from Etienne Marcel's revolt and they are trying to put some of those same reforming measures into practice. But nothing happens in the countryside. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know why. Um, Although it may partly be, it may partly be because there isn't that urban support. I mean, one of the reasons the Jacquerie falls apart is because the um, cities stop supporting them. Mm -hmm. And then they don't have anywhere to go. Mm -hmm. Um, and, so, just sort of- and, and this is something you, I mean, is this just a peasant's revolt or is it also, is it, it's, is it both a Parisian and a peasant revolt? And you, in the end, you, the, the title of your book is peasant's revolt, but throughout yeah. your, your, and in, throughout the conversation, throughout the book, you're deploying the, the evidence uh, showing how there's an inter- interconnection, which we see right yeah. to the end of the, right at the end of the revolt. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you you certainly can never detach the countryside from the cities in the later in later medieval Western Europe. Right. Um, they're absolutely right. you know hand in glove all the time. Um, the people who are actually part of the the Jacquerie, though, um, are very rural. They have city connections, definitely, and it is the city supporting them that I think make this revolt possible. And as I say, um, when they withdraw that support, everybody withdraws their support except for the city of Sandis. Um, th- that's really when the revolt falls apart. Um, but the revolt, the Jacquerie, is rural. Um, and of those where we know um, what kind of background they had, we've only got about 15% who were merchants or artisans. Mm-hmm. You know, most of these people are making their living um, from cultivating the land. So, you know, the decision to make the subtitle A French Peasants' Revolt um, – you know, it's it's partly so that people have some idea of what's in the book, right? Yeah, because people have heard, Anglophones have heard of peasant, peasant revolt, revolt, even right? though it increasingly seems that it's not really they're not as peasanty as peasanty as we thought, or as people thought. <laughs> but let's leave that for another conversation. With uh, but I, I, I let's ask some larger uh, let's ask some some meta questions about how you put together the book. Um, one thing is. Um, you say early on, this is the first book since what, 1848? The first book devoted to the Jacquerie? It's 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 an amazingly yeah. long time. And you had told yeah. me when we were talking before that you, eh, you know, maybe it's there's already a really good book written on it in the 19th century. Maybe I shouldn't write this book. Why? It, it seems to me um, kind of crazy um, that there has been no full book written on this. Um, yeah. And you, you read something of the central high Middle Ages history, you'll you'll come across the Jacquerie as mentioned. It's all part of the Hundred Years' War, and yet no. Why? Why not? Why has this been neglected? Yeah. Well. Okay. I think. I, I think. As I said, in in part in um, Simeon Lucy's, I think it's eighteen fifty nine okay. book on the Jacquerie is actually pretty good. Um, you know, he he had been in the archives. Um, he was the first person to actually look at the archival sources rather mm-hmm. than just the chronicle sources. Um, but then, you know, over the past, oh, most of the last century, yeah. um, French historians have really been um, quite, well, even now are still quite influenced by the Annales School and a sort of downplaying of events mm-hmm in favor of looking at much more long-term structural change. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the extent, but still, there are a lot of political historians of France and of the Hundred Years' War, but they're much more interested um, in elites mm-hmm. and what's going on um, with the government or, you know, with the king. Um, there's been less work on, um, there's been less work on peasants in general. So partly, I think, because we lack the manorial sources that we have for England. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, I think it's just also really um, has to do with where people's interests have lain, as well as that sort of um, 
that sort of block there. Well, I can just read this 19th century book. Am I going to actually be able to say more than that? Mm -hmm. So then this gets into you, you say early on how you were um, uncertain whether you should write something more narratival. Um, I think fortunately you did um, because after all, it's an event that took place, you know, over months. So you kind of have to track how the event happened. How did you come to that decision? And, and, and uh, what were the difficult, there, there, Attentive listeners will notice the extreme difficulties in that you don't know on what day a battle, a sort of rather major battle was fought. I mean, this is welcome to medieval history. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, there are a couple of things there. Um, One, I tend to prefer um, narrative for book length projects anyway, because I I think the history has changed over time. (laughs) I've heard that. If you put things um, in chronological order, you can see that change over time. Um, However, the problem with the Jacquerie is, okay, so one, as I said, all the sources are ex post facto. So you don't have anything from the revolt itself. Two, very few things about the revolt give you a specific time. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a smattering of dates. Um, and then three, this revolt was like, you know, literally a thousand things going on at the same time <laughs> in different places, right? So how to deal with that? And so I, what I, I decided I, to do. I imagine that gonna, you had an enormous whiteboard with post-its and like yarn, like in some sort of police, you know, like crazy. Yeah, police, well, it, I had a relational database and okay, I had well, that's more t- You did, okay. Yeah. yeah, the Google map was was very helpful. Um and that's that's actually online and accessible in a couple of places. We will um, put it in the show notes. <laughs> um but what what I also decided to do was to make um the first four chapters and the last three chapters narrative. Mm-hmm. But the three chapters in the middle are thematic. Mm -hmm. And those are the three chapters that are really about, so they're about violence, the violence of the revolt, the organization of the revolt, and the really the social identity of the participants and their relationships with one another, which is also where I talk about the rural urban um, partnerships. So that allowed me to talk about change over time and to show how what happened on the 28th of May and the, the beginning of the uprising was really the culmination of the past two years or 20 years, depending on how you see that. Um, And to talk about the period of um, the battles at um, Mo and Melo and um, the counter Jacquerie and, and the, um, the sort of truth and reconciliation period Um, again in chronological order. Um, but also to deal with the revolt itself where I can say, okay, this stuff kind of happened in this eight week period. Um, and here and there I am able to say, okay, so I think this happened at this point. I think this changes character, you know, in mid June, um, or whatever, but, but also to deal with that, um, to deal with that in a non narrative format. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about, I mean, not to geek out here completely, but I think people find this interesting. What database did you use? How do you set up a relational database and how many, yeah. inter- I mean, how that must have been a tremendous labor in order to get the final yeah. reward. 
Um, well, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of databases. Um, so I use FileMaker Pro and I've been using FileMaker Pro for nearly 20 years now. I didn't know um, it was still, still you know, even around. Like, yeah, yeah. No, and they update it. It's wonderful. Um, so, so my, the three databases that were in relation to each other was one for the documents themselves, all my transcriptions, um, one for the people involved, and I don't know, there are like 2,000 entries there, and then one for the places involved, and there are over 500 entries there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that allows me to to just sort of sift and sort the information um, to find every case in which um, someone is referred to as Jacques Bonhomme, um, every case of a person who had an organizational role in the revolt to be able to see, okay, so I'm interested in everything um, in all the documents that are related to the city of Sandis. Um, so I can just go to that record and see all those documents and then move back and forth between the documents themselves and the city and, and, via that, see all the people associated with Sandis. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't run queries that give me sort of mathematical information. You know, some, yeah, some people yeah, yeah. do that. They're like, I'm going to run a regression. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to run next, a regression. Next, next book. <laughs> next book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it does allow me to aggregate data um, easily and then do close reading of, you know, that sort of mini corpus. Yeah. Because um, I'm, I'm a big fan of close reading. I pay really close attention to language. Yes, you do. But I'm also, really, <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a really big fan of having lots of data, yeah. having as much evidence as possible, doing as robust um, a reading as I possibly can do. Um, I'm just, there's, uh, speaking of close readings, um, this is, uh, for people that really like their footnotes uncut and on the page where they belong. These aren't end notes. These are footnotes and that oftentimes present untranslated. So, uh, you know, you're, you're one that you can, that, that's nice because then you can make your own interpretation. Uh, you don't have to rely particularly on Justine's, but, um, I'm curious, there are so many amazing, it's when you put that database together, it sounds so unro- unromantic. And the um, the fact is, is that as you study these footnotes, um, one always had the sense of looking through a straw at different lives. Yeah, thousands of mm-hmm. them, with all the yeah. complexity. Maybe even maybe even more complex than our own. Even though it was thirteen, you know, fifty eight. Who knows? Yeah, um, yeah. and, and um, uh, and uh, there's always a voyeurism to studying these court records, uh-huh. you know. Um, and that, and also, as I say, hey, looking at a court record, you're looking at through a straw. You're looking at something brief, some some something anger, something about debt, something about an assault. I, I would be curious, and yet and and yet, amazing stories that piece together make this book. I was curious. You've you've mentioned the um, that those two final stories in the final paragraph, which are will stay with me. The the marriage and also the the murder over rugby. Um, which could happen anytime. And the, um, but I was curious there, I, I, I imagine there are a few that stick with you and that probably mm-hmm. as you, as this book is already in your rear view mirror, you're thinking about the next thing, but there's probably something mm-hmm. that's going to stick with you from this book. And I'm wondering what that is. Yeah. 
Um, it's probably this guy, Arnoul Guénelon, um, who was very important in the organization of the revolt. You know, so he's probably one of these people who actually knew um, Guillaume Cal, the, the great captain, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found him in the archives 40 years later in the late 1390s. Um, huh. Still alive. Of, yeah, he's still alive. He's an old man. Um, and, you know, this is from the charter itself, an, an, an old and, and weakened man um, of 70 years or more who can no longer um, till his fields or tend his vineyards. And so he gives a piece of, he gives one of his vineyards um, to a local monastery, basically in exchange for elder care. Hmm. Um, so it was really interesting to me to to meet this man again, who to see him both in the prime of his life, really leading um, this enormous and unprecedented revolt, and then to see him much later, um, you know, but but still really as a valued and substantial member of his community, um, who who needs someone to take care of him. And I really loved seeing him at these two very different points of his life and and understanding him as a a person who who had a whole life outside of this one very particular moment. Um, and and to think of it, okay, so this is just an episode of his life. You know, basically he went back to he had a wife named. Genevieve, who predeceased him. We don't know if he had any children. Probably not, because he has to um, give his his vineyard to the monastery for someone to take care of him. Um, but, you know, it made, made me think of all of the people involved. I, I guess I got a, a better sense of them as as humans and, and not just at this one very specific moment in time. My guest today has been Justine Fernhaber-Baker. She's senior lecturer at the University of St. Andrews and author of The Jacquerie of 1358, A French Peasant's Revolt. Justine, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.